I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Episodes in the month of March focused on the joy we find and the benefits we derive from gathering to play. Indeed, team-based activities unite individuals of varying talents and gifts, orient them toward a common goal, and offer innumerable opportunities to hone skill as a leader and a follower. As important as play is to wellness and togetherness, though, we also gather to create. In today's global and rapidly changing world, new solutions, ingenious ideas, and compelling designs have high value. One wonders, though, does the still relatively standardized and rote instruction common in many of today's classrooms adequately develop the capacity of our young people to create such dynamic ideas? Do we teach them explicitly enough how to amplify their own creativity? and the ultimate impact of their ideas by collaborating with others of complementary skills and thoughts? To get at questions like these, our focus in the episodes to come this month will shift from the field and the gym to the studio and the stage. After all, as many of our young people today are beckoned to gather to produce a piece of art, music, or dance as they are to play a competitive sport. How then do the arts unite communities of people and promote similar collaborative and teamwork skills to those we saw in the athletic arena. To get this conversation going, I've invited Brian Hutch Hutchison, who joined the parish community as our director of parish arts last July, to join me. Hutch is a visual artist by training, having studied at both Biola University and the Rhode Island School of Design, and an arts education expert and leader by profession. He is also deeply committed to the belief that the arts serve as a glue that binds communities together and did leading work in this area while at Eastside Preparatory School in Tacoma, Washington, before coming to Parish. I am glad to have this opportunity to further introduce Hutch to you in this podcast episode as we explore coming together to create and inspire. Welcome back to the podcast. So enjoyed the March episodes with our parish athletes, Coach McCabe, alumni Charles Cook, talking about how we gather to play and the joy we derive from team-based activities and, importantly, the skills we learn from coming together to collaborate in pursuit of athletic goals. But we do not gather only to play, as the authors of one of my favorite books, Rise of the DEO, Maria Judice and Christopher Ireland, tell us, We've evolved into a society where few can create value alone. Indeed, in today's world, we come together to create ideas and products and solutions. But I don't think we can assume that our children learn the creative process just naturally. There are educators like Montessori and others who would suggest they do. But in today's world, I think schools have a role to play in helping our students learn to generate influential ideas and compelling messages. So I had a great guest that I wanted to bring today to talk about the power of collaboration and teamwork in the world of the arts and the benefits that young people derive when they get together with other creatives. So I'm happy to have Brian Hutch Hutchison. That is a tricky thing to roll off your 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 lips, Hutch, the Brian Hutch Hutchison. We just call him Hutch around here. We welcome him to the parish community. He came in July of 2020 and he and his family, sixth grader Griffin and wife Whitney, are now a part of the parish family, and we're so glad. So, Hutch, welcome. All right. Thanks, Dave. Really happy to be here. And you're right. Hutch Hutchison <laughs> has made me uh, smile and giggle a little every time I see it. Um, 
But yes, let's just go with Hutch. <laughs> tongue, t- tongue twister to be to be sure. So visual artist by training, arts education expert, leader by profession. And I, I just I remember when I first saw your vitae when you were applying a year and a half or so ago, um, how impressive it was that you were taking art out into the community beyond your sc- school community, Eastside um, Prep and uh, Tacoma. And so we'll talk a little bit about that as we get going. But let's talk about this year of transition. I mean, here you are, right? Like, you're, hey, let's, let's, move, let's move halfway across the country, Whitney, Griffin, let's go. It's the middle of a pandemic, a courageous act it was. So not the most opportune time to make a major uh, life or professional transition. So 10 months in, having come from Tacoma, Tell us the highs, the challenges, and maybe some of the unexpected rewards of, of tackling uh, this move at this time in our respective lives. Yeah, you know, I, I got to give credit to my wife. She is always an adventurer. Uh, and so whenever I've pitched a new place, a new idea, I'm always surprised by how easily she gets to yes and let's go. Um, so that that was huge. Um, mm-hmm. I think second, it's like the physical move and the logistics of getting here finding a job for mm-hmm. my wife, finding mm-hmm. a place to live was incredibly smooth, mm. which I often find is a signal of like, this is a place to be and there's work to be done. Mm-hmm. So we're going to make sure that landing is that easy part. Um, one of those things that we we're truly blessed with is the neighborhood in Richardson where we kind of landed immediately had an enormous kid group, which was uh, very important for Griffin nice. to land well. Um, as much as she's starting to get to become part of Parish because of our hybrid kind of yeah. setting, that's been a slower process. So the that bridge of neighborhood friends made a huge difference. That's fascinating. So that would be one of the challenges really that Griffin faced was yeah. social, um, basically becoming socially interwoven here as she started in sixth grade and yeah. how fantastic that she found uh, friends in the neighborhood there. And Whitney's actually got involved with in education as well. And so she landed something in our ISD and, and uh, that's gone well to get her grounded and begin to build a network here too. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's really key. One of, um, one of the kind of driving factors for us to make a shift like this was um, I was in a role at a school at Eastside Preps that I just truly loved. The work was dynamic, but I was a super commuter and I was, mm. you know, two hours each way mm which the actual travel wasn't the problem. The problem and challenge was being more disconnected from my family Mm -hmm. and being more disconnected from the community with which I work and live. And as we, as you kind of alluded to, like that ability to connect the work I do on a day-to-day basis with a broader community and with my family. So Parrish offered us that opportunity to kind of reset some of those parameters um, and so that we could be, local here and and really start to connect with dallas you know and the greater dfw area and and build those kind of community relationships yeah you're you're making that dallas traffic seem like nothing just just (laughs) just leaving here to get to richardson rather than a two-hour drive every day from school to from from school to home but i suspect for you like i can't i cannot imagine how difficult as an especially as a leader within the organization it must have been at points just to know who was who, mm. what was what, policy, procedure, yes. when effectively you were here for a preponderance of your first months uh, on an on and off schedule and, and nobody here was here regularly. So how did you attack that? How did you attack that challenge? You know, I think I'm still working on that. Yeah. There, there's still a lot of people <laughs> who say hi to me that I'm All like, right. I don't quite know your name yeah. because either, you know, we met once or you've seen me on a screen 
or um, that that mask is you know as a as a visual learner is a big hindrance to kind of remembering that. I'm always impressed by all the people you know, Dave. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that, uh, that's a big th- impact. I think mm-hmm. when you know people. Um, so I I was really intentional coming in that I spend time with my team one on one, kind of just before we started uh, following up in the first trimester and the second trimester to try to build some of those community mm-hmm. connections. Mm-hmm. Casey Faulkner, my assistant director, has been huge mm-hmm. in helping mm-hmm. me connect and also Michelle Lyon. Just like a lot of it is asking a lot of questions yeah. and being really curious um, and, and trying to build that picture piece by piece. There's still a ways to go, but I think it's been helpful to have uh, a team, mm-hmm. a community, mm-hmm. and, and people to collaborate with to kind of build build my picture of Parish. Yeah, it sounds smart. Like you work from the inside out, starting with your team and those most proximate to you, build strong relationships with there, and then yes. as you have more normal days ahead for us, you know, God willing, that uh, that we'll all reconnect. And, and I have reconnection to do too, as you will, because the next group to welcome back is parents. There's a whole cohort of new exactly. parents this year that I have yet to meet, right? <laughs> so, And then we have a new one coming in, and we have students uh, that we've um, welcomed in this year who you've only gotten to know in a cursory way where we would have known them really much, much more deeply by now. So that challenge we've all uh, all shared. So you're a visual artist by uh, training. I like origin stories. So I'm wondering if you can trace back to that origin story of when you found art. Yeah, you know, it is, it's a thread that runs through my family. It's in the blood, however you want to say okay. that. So uh, that creativity, you know, comes out in different ways and different folks. Uh, my sister's an art therapist. Uh, I've got cousins who are art teachers or architects. Um, And so that piece has always been there, particularly my sister, Kristen, who's an art therapist. She was a few years ahead of me in school. We were, of all my sisters, she's very close. I have four Mm -hmm. older sisters. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so it was a little bit of competition and a little bit of follow the leader. And so Mm. as she was going through school, I was like, that's cool. Mm. I want to do that. Mm. Or I want to do that better. Mm. Um, And so like, I got to give her that kind of credit of blazing a trail that I simply walked in her footsteps. Yeah. And so when it came time to um, go through high school, she was just, I was a freshman. She's a senior completing her AP portfolio. I was like, I'm going to do that. And I got to score the same as she's going to score. And as she went off to college, she got her undergrad in in painting at UC Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was like, that's cool. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. that's part of my path kind of moving forward. Um, and so that, that really opened up the world of visual arts for me. And then I think once I got off into college and started to blaze my own trail, mm-hmm. um, but it was, it was huge. I mean, she's also called Hutch, by the way, when we were in the same school, it was Hutch boy. Cause I was the younger and then Hutch, you know, um, that's awesome. Yes. To yeah. talk about talk about uh, gender neutrality, right? You're just trying to figure out which hutch is being is being beckoned. But were you an early doodler, or did you did you like to to sketch? Were you into cartooning, or did you watch uh, a lot of animation? Like, were there other inspirations? To, and do you remember early how early you started with that? Yeah, I, I think that was early. I remember getting Ed Emberly books from the mm-hmm. library. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember there were a couple of TV shows, including Bob Ross. And mm, mm-hmm. there's another guy who was like the drawing futuristic cities. I can't remember his name, but that was like that started that drawing piece. And it was drawing that really kind of captured me early on. Yeah. And that uh, I remember like fifth and sixth grade time, I was very much into drawing. 
medieval knights and trying to figure out hmm. uh, how to articulate those well. And I think my anatomy was all out of whack, but like that's the joyous, lovely thing where you're, you're not letting that kind of get in the way at that younger age yeah. before your brain's developing, kind of yep. bringing that critic. Um, and, and so again, like at that age where I started to be that inner critic, my sister was helping me pull me forward, mm-hmm. which is really great. Um, so powerful modeling that she, that she gave you as a non-artist, um, you know, but I would also say that I'm probably a creative, right? Because I do think I've learned that we're all creatives. But as a non-artist, like what impresses me when I see the kids' art or see any artist's art is how unique individual products are, mm. right? So yes. they are these um, expressions of an individual's um, thoughts and feelings and emotions and interpretations of the world. And this is how it's been for thousands of years, like back to cave art, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. how people said, this is what I'm thinking and this is what I'm feeling. So. As, as I think about art and the role art plays in shaping identity, right? More generally, like how do you see arts promoting like a, health, a healthy sense of self in young people? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the tools or part of the toolbox of being an artist is observation, reflection, and curiosity. Um, and, and like you said, it's often there's such a individual uniqueness and it is based off of your own kind of experiences um, I've seen it so much so that like my most recent body of work was about that um, commute that I had that I had to say how do I activate this incredible mm-hmm. amount of time um, but it is sometimes those um, those trials or those hardships mm-hmm. uh, and, and not to say that that was a very great one it was mm-hmm. just time sure um, but I like when uh, uh, a student has something in their life to really process. I think the arts give a vehicle for for doing that. And again, you get you get that opportunity to be reflective and to process things that you can't necessarily verbalize. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I, mean, I didn't know about your sister, but a, really a fascinating connection to her background. Art is really therapy for all of us that sit. When yeah. I go into Samantha Cooper's classes, I did on Monday <laughs> to you know sketch out the ostrich with them in multiple colors and you just sit there for a while and let as a not as again a not not an expert but just sit there with the kids and enjoy yeah. the art and just are just in the routine mm-hmm. of sketching and coloring and drawing um it is almost immediately soothing i find it every time i go in and, and participate so i think arts art can be therapy for all of us but i, I appreciate your point about how how um much of an elixir it is for those that wrestle with challenges, mm-hmm. especially adolescence. This, yes. this time of great uh, disturbance and, and uncertainty in our in our development, where art just allows them to pour it all out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I and I want to also emphasize that it's not just visual arts; it's the arts with a big A, where we talk about that ability again to use the observation, reflection, and curiosity, and that vehicle to express yourself. There's a tangibleness whether that is in theater or in dance, where you can process those things and express in a way that is a little bit magical. Yeah, really, it's so great. And of course, the podcast series this year is focused on this notion of together and what brings us together, what allows us to stay together. So I want to turn to that a little bit. And I'd read last summer, uh, Sean Acor's book, Big Potential, Dallas Resident, uh, by the way, some may know him here in town. He calls to mind, uh, quote, the myth of the lone 
genius. Yeah. Right? And this artist who, like, plies away in a solitary studio and wearing some, you know, dim light and just producing his or own next masterpiece. And, and I think that's a motif that, you know, we think about with composers and, and uh, writers, right, that's, that can be pretty predominant. But um, Aker instead suggests that, quote, innovation and creativity have so much less to do with individual attributes and aptitudes and so much more to do with those around you. So speak to this as an artist and an art educator when you think about the power of group and collaboration uh, when you think about your work as an artist and an art educator. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely resonate with the fact that that kind of that myth of the kind of lone artist and genius doesn't really work. There are times of solitary where you work on a loan, but like creativity is really about pattern recognition and risk taking. Mm. And you do both of those way better in community. And so mm. one of the pieces, if you're in the visual arts classroom, um, over the years, you build up a culture of trust and vulnerability where you can put your work in front of peers and get that mm, feedback, mm. and they're going to help you see things that you can't see. Oftentimes that painting is just too close to your face or you've put too much in for you to really see the major shifts that need to happen or the new patterns that are emerging. And that critique group and that community helps you make those connections. It's the same in theater where you rehearse over and over again, and it's really about that, that group coming together, learning, one, the lines, the blocking, but all of a sudden, after you do it, you bring in the set and the props and the lights. Um, there's something that gels together mm. that if you don't have that entire process of working things, having your director's notes or uh, your peer notes as you go through, that is huge. And they create an environment where you can take those risks. You can say that line in, in a way that you might not have tried on your own. Um, so again, that kind of recognizing and connecting things that you might not necessarily put together is done better in, in, with your peers, as well as taking those risks where you've built up a community of trust and vulnerability where you can be brave. Yep. So. I mean, South by Southwest is the perfect example of that, right? And Aker actually refers to it in his book at points in times, like writers go to writing festivals yes. and artists go to art festivals. Why? Because there's this community of creatives there, yeah. right? So they move from that solitary point, which I agree with you. Like I have to write a lot. You have to write a lot. Like, you know, you, you need that time where you're really just by mm -hmm. yourself. But sometimes the best ideas that you're going to put forth on paper, whether be they written or drawn, are those that you begin to bounce off of other people or thought through with someone else, mm -hmm. in, you know, in that room. So this idea of, of a community of creatives, and I know you feel strong about this role of art in gathering people of all walks of life. And I want you to speak to your, um, to your efforts in Tacoma for sure about like how, how you took artwork and wanted to bring it out into the community to bring people around, you know, of all walks of life, not just school people, just to bring people together and really how that um, instills in your philosophy as a, as a leader of Paris arts. Yeah. Right? You know? Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that it is about both process and product mm -hmm. when we're talking arts education and so often the emphasis is just on the product. And so by inviting the community in to see the process or bringing the mm. art out to the community, um, there is really important education that goes for, for the entire community. Mm -hmm. And sometimes one of the most magical things is when you can invite the community to partake in that process. So I, I think in some of my own personal work, 
especially in Tacoma, I started to transition to um, artwork that was engaged with the community, so uh, public arts, um, and took on a few small commissions and started to realize hmm. how dynamic and hard that work can be. Just putting a mural up in a community, if the community doesn't resonate with it, if the community doesn't connect and have some voice in it, it it is unsuccessful. So that's really back to that power of observation and reflection. You yeah. needed to go out before you did that work. You needed to, to, to listen to mm-hmm. the people there, to reflect on what they were telling you about their places and their spaces, to observe where, how the spaces lived in their lives before you could go put a mural up that would mean anything to them. Exactly. <laughs> and, and because it's important because that mural will just get tagged or you know, did, you know just not get taken care of. And all of a sudden what you hope to be a community asset and to better the community just becomes a burden. Um, and so I think it's the same, you know, one of the things we were able to do at Charles Wright was to connect with uh, a printmaking festival they called a Ways Goose. Um, hmm. And the the festival was already started by a local printmaker who was part of uh, Puget Sound University, mm-hmm. um, Jessica Spring, and a local book, um, independent bookstore hmm. owner. Um, his name was Sweet Pea. And together they put <laughs> together this festival and I, and when I first got to Tacoma, I saw it and I was like, this is amazing. I want to be a part. And, uh, and I asked like, how can my high school be a part of this? Mm. And they said, well, you know, I don't know. And I was like, can we volunteer? And they said, yes, we definitely need volunteers. And that volunteer opportunity turned into uh, a chance to create work as part of the festival. They do something called a steamroller print. Um, and so they have artists or teams of artists mm-hmm. carve a giant linoleum block and literally drive over it with a steamroller to wow. print the print. Um, and so after a year of volunteering, they offered us a chance to create a print. With the students. With the students. Right, And right. that has continued to this day. So the, the teacher who took over for me, she was connected to that community as well. Yeah. And again, that starts to connect the this independent school with the greater community. Right. The students start to volunteer and really see this connection um the community starts to see what the process is it's amazing when you're there just inking the prints in front of a live audience no less with a steamroller <laughs> yes. if you really want to understand how, <laughs> yes. how lithography works right <laughs> right and so like the, there was amazing bonds there and another community that was involved in that was called larsh i'm not sure if you're familiar with I'm them not. they're a, a kind of a faith-based organization um they started with this uh french catholic priest Really hmm. uh, a community of people with and without disabilities. So hmm. uh, in Tacoma, there's a local large community that ran a farm. Hmm. And they would always come and sell plants. And so then we started to connect and bringing students to volunteer there. Mm-hmm. And then also creating our next print about their community mm-hmm. and what they did. And so all of those pieces start <clears throat> to wrap in of connecting artists to the community, community to the artists. And there's a, a way that we all can reflect what's on our mind and mm-hmm. process what's going on yeah. through all those pieces. This then foretells, I think, your philosophy of where over time you you will like to see the Paris Arts go. Your predecessor, uh, Carl Rice, really had to talk about arts being everywhere just to build arts presence within our community, right? To l- work yes. on the infrastructure of the development of our programs and our spaces and so it does seem that um, this this interest that you have and this now this experience that you've honed um, may foretell where you'd like to see Paris Arts go as it matures into this its next generation. Yeah, and I think you know um, Carl did an amazing job setting that foundation for me to build on. So mm-hmm. now the noble is coming online. Right. It becomes a key piece for us to engage with the greater community. So whether that's bringing the community to Paris right. or Paris out to the community that key building will you know enable so much for us 
So in, in these episodes in the last month or so, we've talked a lot about how um, being a member of an athletic team in particular uh, teaches enduring skills that can be attributed across all facets of life, right? And uh, they have a lot to do with um, sacrifice of self, right? Uh, learning when to lead and, and, when, and when to follow, uh, the power of shared experience, the richness of shared experience. Mm. You know, I wonder as, as you think about um, young people coming together in the arts, again with a capital A, what enduring lessons do you think are, are ones most worthy of illumination? Yeah, it's kind of the trifecta of confidence, creativity, and collaboration. Hmm. Um, it, so we talked about in the visual arts classroom, oftentimes that's built out over years. So when I look at the AP studio um, and those students, hmm. they have a different sense of community there that is built through a sense of trust and sharing it, and training in terms of how to connect with one another about their work where I could come to they could come to each other and say that's not working in your piece and it doesn't come across as a dig it's like there's true um, helpful and selflessness in that comment to serve that student's work and and vulnerability yes and which I did talk about with Charles Cook uh, our alum around athletics I do think uh, on teams right you 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 um grow to be vulnerable after after a disappointing loss yes. right because you put so much time and sweat equity in together you know after a particularly bad game for an individual right where you where you have to be vulnerable in front of teammates so that's interesting that you mentioned this notion of of uh, especially the, the 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 more advanced artists having really to be uh, able to open themselves up for, for, for critique and, and to be vulnerable in that sense. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit supercharged in the area of theater where you're, mm. it's a very intense project okay. where you're rehearsing um, every single day, sometimes on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, there is so much time that goes into that one project. So many pieces that have to be collaborative and connected together. Uh, it's one of, you know, as I advised freshmen in the past, said, if you want to get connected to the community, you join a sports team or you join a theater production. Right. So those have the strongest parallel, being right. in, a, in a cast of, a, of a, a dramatic performance and being on an athletic team have the same, yes. uh, more of the same features. Yeah, yeah. And you'll see that in the rosettes. You'll see it in drumline. Mm. Um, you'll see, I think, uh, kind of a halfway in between is those music ensembles mm-hmm. that, again, have to build that cohesion um, over time that allow them, one, to feel confident. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about, like, when you're singing in a big choir, it's a little bit easier to sing out than when you're on a solo. correct. You know, it's the same thing right, on right, the right. stage. Um, hmm. So there's that huge notion of collaboration. There's that notion of confidence that comes from these pieces. Um, and then that, that creative element, again, those groups together allow you to make those unique connections to be brave and to take those risks. The risks, yeah. Yeah. I could see really really putting yourself out there, which, again, I think athletics do for sure. Um, but that's another parallel and a really powerful takeaway from the arts that um, sometimes sitting in a excellent English class or history class or math class, you can really put a lever on how much you're going to put yourself out there and probably yeah. still get away with just, just kind of coasting and cruising on through. But... Once, you, once you've decided to, to put an idea on the paper or to put your voice out uh, into the air, <laughs> right, or to put yourself on a stage. Yeah. Is, you know, no, no take backs. 
That's right. You know, and we try to really kind of give opportunities that are stepping stones to what that might be. Like a, an upper schooler doing a one act is a much easier kind of stepping stone into that confidence yep. than committing to uh, the musical. You know, so there's there's different pieces that allow us to kind of like help students, you know, dip their toes in the water and then get ankle deep and knee deep. And and then they're, they've got the bug. And they're off to the races. Yeah, power, powerful, powerful examples there. Um, we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but I'm suspecting you are as big a fan of Daniel Pink's 2005 oh, yes. book, A Whole New Mind, as, yes. as I am. And I took it back out again for like you can see on my desk here how tattered and, and worn out it is. I took it out in preparation for us sitting down to, to talk about it. But, you know, we talk about these enduring skills. You know, Pink talks about high concept and high touch skills, right, in this in this. Uh, interconnected complex world of today, mm-hmm. you know, rote learning, um, you know, mechanical skill, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of finite knowledge are having diminished value over these high touch and high concept skills. And he talks about these high concept skills as being ones that, quote, involve the capacity, as you just mentioned earlier, to detect patterns, mm-hmm. to create artistic and emotional beauty, to craft a satisfying narrative and combine unrelated ideas into something new. This is something gifted teachers across subjects do, by the way. But I wonder, though, in the arts, whether you see these skills being taught explicitly or implicitly just come to be understood. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. One, I think the arts just thrives in the liberal arts environment, right? Because when you're part of a school like Parrish, the arts provide a place for all the other academic disciplines to be kind of mixed up mm. and synthesized into something new. So that there's where that pattern recognition mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is coming through. Um, mm. I also think there's there's something about the the tangibleness of taking those ideas and expressing them either through um, your body, right, the, the dance and theater, um, through the physical things you make. You know, they always talk about when you take notes by writing them down, mm-hmm. there's a different sense of memory because there's the, the connection, mm-hmm. the muscle memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of what the arts do is they kind of bring that together and allow it to come out in that direction. Um, and so just, you know, the, the visual arts are creating beauty through their fingertips. You know, the, the theater is taking narrative embodied Right. Mm-hmm. And, and music is really also has an incredible pattern recognition mm-hmm. going on as they're playing those notes and again, giving a physicality. And I can see the music teacher talking to that pattern. Yes. I could see it explicitly. Yeah. I, I could see a dance instructor speaking to pattern of movement. Right. I, I don't know that they would necessarily uh, sit there and explicitly talk to, um, you know, how a particular movement or, or tone of play or choice of color would evoke a certain level of beauty more than another, right? Right. Whereas that just becomes sort of an implicit, again, art being very individual, kind of an individual feel that an artist develops. Well, they actually do. When you talk about color theory, they're harmonious colors when, you know, so like I think it's going to depend on where you're going, but oftentimes if you're putting, you know, yellow and purple together, there is an electricity to that. 
you know, and so it's this purposeful connection to you put these together, they're going to become more alive. Mm-hmm. You put these together, you're going to create more harmony. Interesting. So that know, would be explicitly instructed be explicitly. to just have the artist come to understand how those colors play, um, you know, play together. And, and again, in, in today's world, those those high concept skills, right, as you go out into a world that um, design now drives product quality and product attraction and you know what's happening in social media which is so artistic in in uh in how it and how it conveys an idea and draws people in right these these skills are so important for young people today to um to either be explicitly taught or implicitly implicitly aren't right yeah and i think that's really important like especially through the pandemic we've noticed the just video has taken off and this ability to be to, to like to tell a story mm-hmm. and, and oftentimes it's really telling a story in 30 seconds or very short snippets <laughs> tiktok worthy exactly <laughs> yeah you know I, you know watching a movie with my wife and thinking wow oh, like this is kind of boring but that's because it's from the 1980s and it's a different world where our brains were were slightly different wired and we had more patience for some of those versus the lego movie which is every 30 seconds there's a different beat happening and yep. a different joke so that's yes. power of narrative is incredible. Now, I know that when Pink talks about the high touch skills, these are ones the arts, they, they just flourish in the arts, right? More so than Absolutely. in, you know, more so in, in sort of the uh, com- competitive driven world of, of sports, right? Where empathy, right? right? <laughs> you know, and, and the ability to find joy in oneself and elicit joy in others and these sort of subtleties of human interaction are, are more, are, are more uh, suppressed. You know, Pink says, quote, these high-touch skills provide the ability to empathize with others, to understand the subtleties of human interaction, to find joy in oneself, and to elicit it in others. Can you describe how the arts personally, you know, promoted the development of such traits in you? Like, where you think it developed that sense? Again, your sister's um, influence and, and mentoring, I think, would be um, seminal here. Or even in the students that you work with, you know, these developing these high-touch these high-touch skills. Yeah, you know, I think personally, so I use uh, the arts as a way to process. My parents got divorced when I was kind of eight mm, or nine. Mm. That didn't really get processed until I was in college through the work that I was creating there. Um, there's also another thread that runs through my family, and I often call it compassion, but uh, my mom worked in the welfare system in California. My dad has worked in probation, probation and parole mm, and had a background mm. in, in the seminary. Um, mm. You know, I've got my sister. I've got a couple sisters that are nurses mm-hmm. and a sister who's working mm-hmm. Um, in mental health. My wife works in mental health. Correct, right, a lot of service. So uh, all those connections mm-hmm. to serving people. Yeah. So like there was an interest that I found um, that again, the toolkit of observation, reflection, and curiosity, like what is happening and what do I need to set up in myself in order to kind of understanding where I'm going. And then as an arts educator, how do I create an environment where kids can really be creative if they don't feel safe or trusted, they can't take those risks. Mm-hmm. And so that started to make me realize, oh, I need to learn some of these skills and build the culture in the classroom where students will feel like they're at a point where they can take a risk creatively. Yeah. Um, especially as you come into the middle and high school years, it doesn't happen automatically anymore. Mm-hmm. You have to be intentional about that. And then it made me start to think, how do I how do I design that amongst my team? Yep. And so those pieces went from how do I do it for myself? How do I do it for students in a classroom? And now how do I equip my teams 
to design and build those environments. Yeah, I think that's so well said. And, and the um, college preparatory academic march has become so rules-based yes. and, and has created such risk aversion mm-hmm. for parents and students because they think, I think uh, incorrectly, that there's a formulaic solution of uh, certain courses you take and a certain way that you respond to answers in those courses to get the right grades, to mm-hmm. get you the right transcript, to get you to the right college, that essentially take the curiosity and the element of stepping out and pondering an, a, a pers- an idea or a concept from a different perspective or, uh, you know, choosing a course because it's of interest to you rather than mm-hmm. it fits in a transcript. That that type of risk-taking is uh, not seen in our academic program as much as we might like and is going to be, therefore, more explored in the, in the arts and, and, and the athletic environment, right? Right, and, you know, and there's a different level of burden on the arts. There's not the same expectations <laughs> that it's going to um, equal... A, a life of you know a certain kind of success yep. you know and i think that gives us the leeway to play unlike maybe math or science has yep. or english has where there's a different level of stakes and different expectations are set on them but i think you're right like we can give students the opportunity to fail uh, and to fail quickly and to realize they are surrounded by a community that yep. supports them and again that we've designed that intentionally. You know, I started in the last kind of, you know, five or six years, started thinking of myself as a learning experience designer. Mm. Um, And as my role has shifted more into leadership, that has worked really well for me to say, even though I'm not in the classroom as much, I'm still a learning experience designer and just collaborating with larger teams, setting up the spaces and the cultures for our students to um, experience all these things and, and to find uh, joy in what they do and to connect with the work that they're making. Yeah, I like that because I, I often talk to younger faculty members too about seeing themselves less as content experts mm-hmm. and more as architects of a learning ecosystem or environment yes. that gets them to shift more on what the learner's doing and less on what they're saying. So I think that really is, is parallel. And again, I love this um, idea that of authenticity that I explored with the athlete conversation I think is in play here why is it that our kids are so much more energized generally to come to practice to go to the game regardless of domain athletics or arts than they are to do the transactional work of the academic environment and it is this level of authenticity Mm -hmm. to it it's this level of unpredictability it's this level of control and agency it's this sense of of curiosity and reflection observation it's a sense that they get to go in some cases you know with without a worry about uh, where it leads them, yes, right? Yeah. That these are the two domains of our world here in the arts and athletics that allow kids to just go do mm-hmm. independent of what's going to end up on a report card at the end of uh, of 10 or 11 weeks. The rest of the stuff, even up to their community service hours, are all things that have to be tabulated and tabbed. Yep. You know, once they get that done, then they can go do the stuff they like to do, which means they'll come to Rosette's practice at six in the morning. Yes. They'll, they'll stay late and kick, kick an extra ball or, you know, shoot an extra shot. Yeah, uh, where it's a lot harder sometimes to get them to do that in their academic subjects. Yeah, and I love, I just love that that the sense of they get a sense of autonomy in some of these spaces. They they get to be authentically themselves. I had a a theater director once tell me like, if you are not being weird, if you're not being yourself, you know, that's what's really stands out, right? If you come to that place and you can't be yourself, that's going to make you be you know the odd one out rather than coming in and just being you yeah so you're 10 months in here and, and kind of wrapping things up like what's you know what is what's the next uh what's the next set of immediate priorities for you as you think about um 
you know, uh, where we're where we're heading uh, in the future of, of of the arts at Parish. Yeah, so certainly successfully launching the Noble, we've <laughs> yeah. got a lot of uh, details that are really important for us to kind of line up um, to transition into that space. I am so um, thankful for the timeline. Like we actually have time mm, to do mm, some of that mm. work, um, which is um, just a huge blessing because mm-hmm. it takes to do it well. It takes time. Mm-hmm. It's really about shifting as we shift habitats, intentionally shifting our habits mm-hmm. to that new spaces. Mm-hmm. And all the, like, hey, let's get that furniture in there yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, as the pandemic wanes, uh, I'm really eager and excited to connect with the community. Mm. I've had a few phone calls with parents, <laughs> mostly positive. Yeah. Um, and, and even the ones that maybe weren't positive were really positive in the sense that it was a connection. Uh, so yeah. connecting with our parents and then starting to make those connections out into the greater community, I think, uh, again, that's one of the things that got me really excited about being here is there's there's growth to happen. Mm-hmm. That parish as an institution is at a certain age mm-hmm. that is ripe for those connections to be made. Yeah, it's really next. Uh, it, it's it's next ascent mm-hmm. for as we were alluding to earlier in the conversation for you and in, 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 in terms of where we are generation generationally with with parish arts here and uh, this uh, we're recording here essentially the first of April and so you've really uh, and your team have this next four months uh, or so leading up into next year yeah. to as you say take good advantage of a, of a chunk of time to uh, begin to establish those habits that are going to be part and parcel of, of your all's existence in the in, in the noble before we welcome everybody back and we can't wait to do that next year as part of the 50th <laughs> anniversary of the school and uh, so many big and exciting things uh, that will be taking place there next year so be on the lookout for great news coming out from here about uh, events to welcome you back to campus next year um, to see all the amazing um, output that our students produce and these uh, lessons that Hutch and I have talked about today that the arts um, instill in our kids as they move through their parish experience. It's been fun. Thanks for hanging out with me for a little bit. We're glad to have you at Parish. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, Amara and I are slated to welcome a special guest to the podcast, Dallas Mayor, the Honorable Eric Johnson. Of course, Mayor Johnson's schedule can be difficult to predict, but we are excited for the opportunity to talk with him about the challenging role leaders face today, keeping their constituents together. Later this month, Amara and I will welcome parish artists and parish arts faculty members to pick up the conversation we started in this episode with Hutch about the unifying force of the arts. We'll see you next time on the From My Angle podcast.